Heavenly Father, thank you for a warm room, especially when it's a little cold outside. And thank you, Father, that the weather, though it's it's a little a little brutal, it's not so bad that we can't be here. And thank you, as always, Father, for the ministry that Luke gave to us through his faithfulness in writing down the words you provided. And the book of Acts, Father, has been a study that has helped us see clearly how you were at work always from the beginning in establishing this church that we now participate in by faith. And as we continue to study and see how you extended the the mystery and the, the grace of the gospel to the Gentiles, we do ask, Father, that it would be considered our training ground to help extend it even further in our lifetime and that you would be pleased by our efforts at that work. And thank you, Lord, for the time tonight. Bless as we study what we hear and what we learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We come to the second half of the book of Acts starting tonight. And it's a, a second half because Luke began looking at Peter. Now Peter's faded into the sunset. If it had been a western, he'd have been riding on a horse as we saw him leave Jerusalem at the end of chapter 12. And now he's looking at Paul. Or as he is called still at this moment, Saul. And it is the focus of the Gentiles that also comes to the foreground now in this second half. So it's Paul or Saul and the Gentiles that now become a focus for the rest of the book of Acts. And we're almost halfway in the count of chapters as well, but not quite. It's clear that Luke gives the weight of his narrative to the story of Saul. Uh, remembering that the first Gentile church was established where? In Antioch? There's a great trivia question. Where was the very first Gentile church? Antioch. It was established under the guidance of Barnabas. He didn't start it, but he came to it very quickly after it began and was the initial apostle there helping ground that new faith and explain it to those who were receiving it. And then shortly after he arrived, he realized the magnitude of what was taking place and he knew he needed help. And of course, we heard at the end of chapter 12 that his friend Saul lived in Tarsus, just a a little ways up the road. And he went, found Saul and brought him into the city. And they spent several years there uh, guiding the church in Antioch. Now we see what comes next. So chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. As Luke opens up the chapter, let's look at the description of the church in Antioch as a starting point. And here's where observation helps a lot. You know, we've talked here in times past about the importance as we study the Bible of looking at the going through a methodical process of observation, interpretation, application. You often heard those. There's actually a fourth step, and that is consider the prophetic impact of what you read. There's always or almost always prophetic meaning in text of Scripture. But looking just at the first three for now, uh, observation is the one that most people do the worst at the poorest job at. And it leads to mistakes every other step of the process after that. So observation is very important. Here's an example of what I mean. You have a list here of prophets and teachers. And in the Greek, the way the grammar of the verse appears in Greek, it is clear that the writer intends to associate some of the names with prophet and some of the names with teacher. 
Specifically, the first three names are set apart from the last two in the grammar of the Greek. So that would mean the first three are prophets, the last two are teachers, keeping the symmetry of prophet first, then teacher. So Barnabas, for example, we know is a prophet based on that description. But also we find Saul listed here as teacher. Now, looking at Barnabas just for a moment, he's probably the leader of this church. The order of the list also probably implies order of importance. And if that's true, then that would mean that Barnabas would have been the leader in that church. That would make sense. He was the first on the scene. And I'm assuming that that led to him having a prominent role from that point forward. It's also interesting here that Saul is considered the least of the five. But that also would make sense in light of Saul's past. We haven't seen the Paul of the New Testament yet, not in full force. That future of Paul is yet to be known in the day he was in Antioch. So all he is known for really is the man who once persecuted the church. Now he's joined us. That's not a great pedigree for leadership in the church. So it let him be in the church. It certainly made him accessible to those who wanted to hear the word of God taught, but it probably also reduced his prominence to some extent, certainly at this stage. So you have these two men as bookends on this list. And then the three men that are in between represent a quite a diverse group. When you look at who they are, where they come from, you have a dark skinned man from Africa. That's the reference there to Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is the word in Greek for black. It's probably a reference to the fact that he was a dark-skinned man. Then you have a man called Lucius, which is really just Luke in the Greek. So you have a man called Luke, who's a Roman. This is uh, not the Luke who wrote the text. And then you have another man who is said to be of privilege. He was raised in Herod's court. This is a common practice in the day. The royalty of the day would often find a young boy or girl of same of the same age as their own child from the local culture and adopt them, not necessarily legally, more as a, a sort of a foster child, bring them into the court and raise that child. But it ensured a trusted play child or play friend for the young family of the of Herod in this case. So he, he basically went out and recruited play friends for his kids But then he would keep them under his control and raise them inside the home as a foster child so that that was a controlled environment and they weren't risking bringing just anyone off the street to play with their kids. So this is a man who, though, later obviously became a believer and has now found his way into the church at Antioch. When you put all of these people together, looking at them as a cross section of humanity and throw into that group, by the way, Barnabas and Saul and their respective backgrounds, you immediately are struck by the unifying power of the message of the gospel in that day. It's, it's evident here how so many different men from so many different walks of life and so many different cultures and even different continents at this point have all come together and are united in the same faith and now find tremendous common ground on that basis. It's an early indication of just how thoroughly the gospel is going to penetrate the Gentile world. Even in the very first church, the leadership is already so diverse. The, the text says, Luke goes on from there to say, This group was in the midst of ministering to the church in Antioch when the Spirit made a call for two of these leaders to move on. The word for ministering in Greek here, it's a unique word, actually. It only appears in the the text of the New Testament two other times when used in this fashion. It literally means the conducting of worship service or of priestly duties. That's another way in which it's used. So it's ministering in a very specific sense here. They were engaged in the active, daily administering of the needs of a church. 
We don't have to think too strictly here to say they're just in the middle of a worship service. That's not necessarily implied. But it's to say they were in the business of the church, the day-to-day business of the church. And they were actively serving in this way, meeting the needs of the group, when, bam, the Holy Spirit steps in and says, it's time for you two to go. Note who was called. The senior most leader and the least of the leaders. Barnabas on the one hand, Saul on the other. This is a great opportunity to take stock of how the Spirit works. If he works this way in the very first church, then it would stand to reason that his means of moving the body of Christ into, into something new would mirror this more or less. It would be a common pattern. That's a good assumption. And I think our experience in the church probably would affirm that in that you often see men or women who are in active ministry called out. The, the problem is, or if there is a problem with that pattern, it, it only comes from the fact that we either don't understand it and see it for what it is, or we try to manipulate it. Uh, and I say we, I just mean generally the body of Christ will sometimes try to manipulate it. So looking at the pattern for a moment is worth, I think, a, mo- a little of our time, a moment of our time, if, if only so that we can understand the way it should be done and uh, then maybe hope to follow it in the future. Uh, the first point I'd make in just looking at the text is God can call anyone at any time to serve him in any way. Because Barnabas, as he sits here at this point in his life, having come into the church at the earliest stages, seen its growth, now having reached really the zenith of his ministry, he's leading the biggest, maybe the only major Gentile church in the world and presumably doing it successfully and presumably thinking that he had been preparing for this moment in all that had happened prior. This was the culmination of all that he had learned and done in his ministry, either as a Jew before faith and certainly since he had become an apostle. So here he is leading the first Gentile church in the third largest city in the Roman Empire. That's a megachurch. That's the, that's the top of the ladder. And next to him you have Saul, who might have also assumed that he was already serving in the perfect place for him, because remember, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Here he is in the first major Gentile church in this big city. This would seem to be commensurate or consistent with his calling, wouldn't it? But Barnabas wasn't destined to be leaders of church, to be a leader of churches. That's ultimately not where his ministry goes. And Saul couldn't reach the greatness that we know God had him intended for in his, ultimately in his ministry if he stayed in one place. And you won't see all that God is prepared to achieve in your life if you mistake progress for obedience. If you mistake your progress for obedience. They're not the same thing. And in this case, God called two men who could have otherwise looked at their circumstances and said to themselves, this is it. I don't need to go anywhere else. This is where God has put me. That statement's only true until he moves you. And the group in this case hears the call of God. They fast, they pray, and they obey. Today, and and this is not just today, this has probably gone on since the first days of the church, but men who become too comfortable, and I say men, you can, I, I hope you, you understand, I assume both men and women in this conversation, not just men, but men are you know, more often in the leadership positions of obviously in ministry. They are very, there's a tendency on the one hand to stay uh, comfortable, thinking that what's working today is what's always meant to be, and you, you stop listening for the call. The other extreme, and the one that I find even more common, unfortunately, is a view that says movement is a part of progression. And that, like a career in any other walk of life, I must move on to move up. 
And so I get stir crazy after a while. I've done all that I can do and relationships are starting to wear thin and all the bloom is off the rose and and, uh, I've got more enemies now than friends. I guess it's time to move on. These are the reasons we use for moving on from any other kind of job. Why wouldn't it apply to this? And I think those are both wrong because they both take God out of the equation and put our our own fleshly interests into the center of the decision-making process. Here you see two men who who presumably were not looking for a new job, so to speak, a new calling, but God placed one on them. And then looking at it now from the point of view of the church itself, who likes to lose their pastor? Or in the case of Barnabas, the senior most member of their leadership team. This is how every church departure or separation or departure should take place, and I have almost never seen it. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it is very rare. Notice first, as a group, they fast and pray over the decision. Fasting and prayer is an important part of of a disciplined Christian life. In this case, I think it reflects their careful consideration and their desire to seek confirmation from the Holy Spirit. In general, though, those are good practices because they help us learn how to put fleshly interests aside, how to discipline the flesh and seek wisdom from the Spirit in place of our own desires. It's a discipline that comes with practice. People often say, well, how does fasting really help me spiritually? And I think the best analogy I can give you is how does a soldier running through an open field shooting at paper targets, crawling under barbed wire, doing push-ups, how does that help them in war? The point is that they have trained to encounter certain hardships and persevere through them and learn what the body requires and how to discipline it and control it in the face of pain or stress or fatigue. And so that when the moment comes to put that all to to work, they understand how to go into that moment and persevere and, and handle it. In a spiritual context, there are times in which the spirit will be warring with our flesh at an exaggerated level, more than normal. We'll be in one of those battle moments where we're really tempted and we're really uh, in the middle of a trial. If we don't know how to keep our body from eating when it wants to, how are we going to handle the tougher assignment when the body is calling us to do much worse kinds of things, much worse kinds of sin? When we haven't figured out how to simply discipline it on something as simple as, I know I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat. That's tough. It's tough. And if you practice it enough, it gets easier. And if you practice it consistently, you'll become disciplined. And that discipline carries over into another context when you need it to. I can tell you that from personal experience. I get lazy spiritually. And I get easily distracted spiritually. And I get easily consumed by the things that don't matter. That's usually the first indication for me that, okay, I need to reassert my spiritual disciplines. I need to think more and more about disciplining the body, fasting, prayer, turning away things that I enjoy just for the sheer fact that it's an exercise in practicing crucifying the flesh. And it will transfer. Those disciplines will come out in other ways as you need to fight other battles. And that's, that's the effect. This church is obviously in the gate, engaged in it as a part of their regular practice. They were doing it even before the call of the Spirit in the way the text expresses it. And then as they come to this important decision, as it's brought to their attention, they continue in fasting and prayer And then as they seek and receive confirmation, they confirm what God has told them by laying on of hands. That's a a way of commissioning someone for ministry, of recognizing the Spirit's call and affirming it, both publicly for the sake of the church body, but publicly as well for the sake of the individual. I can remember in my own life when there was a moment like that for me, and I had a laying on of hands by a group of men who said to me, you have been called into a ministry of teaching, and we want to affirm that. The most surprised person in the room was me. And that was, I think, part of what the the intent of this 
moment is supposed to be about. It's about the person themselves understanding that others see something, even if you're not ready to admit it yourself. And they are affirming a work here that you can't ignore any longer. And it's a very powerful moment. So they've done that for these gentlemen. Let's just look at the pattern here and then we'll move on. This is the classic biblical approach to a change in ministry. First, serve the people God has given you. Whether as a prophet, a teacher, counselor, laborer in some context, don't be looking for the next thing if that means ignoring what you have. So they're busy at the work of ministering. That's how the text began. While they were ministering, not while they were looking, not while they were sending out resumes, not while they were seeking offers, while they were ministering. Secondly, they were listening for or at least receptive to the Spirit's call. They were in fasting. They were in prayer. God steps into those kinds of moments and He speaks to them. They weren't busy with a five-year plan. Five years means God's told me everything I need for the next five years. He'll check in again in five years. That's nonsense. I can think about what next year will bring in the next year. That's fine. But I don't have a plan in hard terms because if I ever get to that point, there's a great likelihood I'm not going to look up again for a while. And while I'm busy on my five-year plan, here goes God off on on a different direction. And that's always a dangerous way to conduct ministry. So they were listening, ready to move when required, not so attached to what they have that they'd miss what could be. They were ready if God called them to something better. Better here meaning better for Him. Third, once a call arrives, and here's where I think the process really goes off the tracks for, for my, in my experience in many churches, at least in many places I've been. Once the call arrives for a given individual, in this case, let's say the senior pastor, Barnabas, we aren't supposed to contemplate that kind of decision in private. What does he do? He goes to the rest of the leadership and he makes it known. There's counsel taking place in that conversation. There's prayer opportunities. There's the need for confirmation by the Spirit in the life of the leadership there. So that not just one man hears a call, but the group understands there's a call. All of that needs to take place. They need the body's strengths at work in confirming the Spirit's words and preparing that person for the change. It's, it should not be done in secret. And of course, today, in most cases, the first time you hear that your pastor may be leaving is when they tell you your pastor's gone. How many men have the same experience in ministry? I know I've, I've seen that. Some pastors thinking about something, but they're not sure if they should or if they shouldn't. What if they were to seek that counsel from their elders and the elders were to say, you know, we've been thinking the same thing. But in our day and age, what, we don't typically do that because, well, if they hear I'm thinking of leaving, they'll just get rid of me. Or they'll think I'm not loyal to the church. The, the mindset goes from spiritual to the worldly way we think about keeping our jobs and employment and getting fired. I mean, all these concepts that don't really apply in this context. These men were not afraid to voice the possibility that they were supposed to move on. If somebody were to call me, or let's just, I'll use myself as an example because I don't have anybody else to talk about. If, if I were, uh, nor should I, but if, if I were called by someone who said, hey, Steve, I hear you're pastoring in Austin and you know, we got this great job for you up in some place where it snows, some place where it snows a lot and... Uh, and not that that would enter into my decision, of course. It just depends on the time of year. But and they said, we want you to come up and be our pastor because we heard God say you should be our pastor. That could happen. That is theoretically possible. God could have spoken to them. He could be using them to talk to me. That is theoretically possible. But in that situation, the obligation then rests on me to seek God's confirmation. And he will confirm it if he's the one saying it over here. And the confirmation will come from my wife. Right? You're my wife. 
which is why she'd be the last one I ask, actually, especially if it was up north. No, it'd come from my wife. It'd come from the elders. It would come from other godly men that, that I may know and seek counsel from. That process has to happen or the body's not being put into work. And in the case of that church, I'd have to be willing to go to the eldership and say, first of all, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm putting this out because I need confirmation one way or the other. And that's a mature way to approach a call. So that's what they do here. And then finally, with the confirmation having been made through prayer and fasting, the body sends them out. And here's an important distinction about how they do it. They send them out with a laying on of hands. We don't sneak out. We don't sneak away at night. We don't show up one day for work and the next day the pastor's gone and everybody's sitting around wondering who's going to replace him. That is not the biblical model. You never see that happen. In fact, the only time that kind of a departure happens, it's followed by criticism in Scripture one of which we'll see tonight. So departures are reasons to celebrate the Lord's word and his direction and his work in the body of Christ. I'll tell you, when we've had major decisions in our family life, almost inevitably my wife had the idea before I did and had a fairly certain feel about it before I did. And then it came to me later. And it came to me in a, in a way that I knew she was right. It wasn't like she just wore me down or something. I mean, it was very obvious when it all happened, it was supposed to happen. I'll chalk it up to her being more sensitive to the Lord's leading than I am. And I think the helper completer role kicks in for me at that point. If we can't leave a ministry in this way, from front to back, all the way through that process, it begs a question of whether we're truly leaving as a result of the Lord's call. If it's truly the Lord moving us on, every one of those steps is in our favor. It works to our advantage. If any one of those is seen as a threat to the prospect of leaving, it immediately begs the question of whether we're really leaving for the right reason. Because if it's truly the Lord, every one of those steps is a, is a helpful confirmation of what we're trying to do. It's not going to be a threat to the process. It's important to me because it is so classically not done and it hurts churches so badly, so deeply when it's not done. They resent the way a pastor may sneak out at night. They, they question his motives. The guy they thought was their pastor they loved and now they question whether he really loved them because he snuck off in the middle of the night. Or be, you know, and then Did they fire him or not? Or did he do something wrong? Or, I mean, my wife and I left the church here in San Antonio years back and when we did, I went into the pastor, explained to him why, and under the circumstances, why we needed to leave. And he, he understood it. And then he did the right thing and said, well, we need to send you off. And so we picked a Sunday service when we would all come up as a family, and he would lay on hands and pray over us. And then that gave everyone in the service a chance to come up and shake our hands, say, oh, we're sorry you're leaving or whatever. But you know, we didn't sneak off. And I've never done that in a church. I never will. Now, a church may not want to send me off. They may say, no, we prefer you leave quietly. But I'm not going to do it myself. I'm not going to make that choice. So Barnabas and Paul now leave Antioch in response to the call. First, they go to Seleucia, but it's about 16 miles, 60 miles southwest of uh, the Mediterranean, uh, up, up on the very northeastern corner of the Med. Then they, uh, so as they get to that port, they get in a ship, they then sail to Cyprus. Cyprus is a large island, as you probably know, uh, out in the Med. It's got a large Jewish population in this day. And so then they start walking around the island. And here we find them in verse 5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John. Uh, they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the, the proconsul away from the faith. So we have the first stop here on the island, a place called Salamis. Today we call that place Solai. Uh, it's Solai, Cyprus. 
Notice they go to synagogues first, as has been their tradition, of course, throughout their ministry. They go first to the Jew. This is consistent with what Paul says in Romans 1.16. The, gen- the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. And everywhere Saul goes, and later Paul, everywhere he goes, he abides by this rule throughout his entire ministry as an apostle, always preaching to the Jews in the synagogues, because that's where you find them. And following that rejection, which was inevitable, the, the rejection of the message was almost inevitable when he did this, then he would move to the Gentiles, because remember how God's plan for the gospel was originally designed. It was always designed to be offered to the Jew who would then reject it. Based on that rejection, it made possible an opportunity for the Gentiles. Paul simply repeated that pattern everywhere he went to reinforce its truth. Not because he expected to see the pattern change at any given moment, but because he was being respectful or obedient to the pattern and reinforcing it as a teaching point, if nothing else. And also, I'm I'm sure, out of respect for and allegiance to the Jewish people. But knowing full well, as he wrote in Romans 11 himself, this was going to be the result. From the Jew having rejected it, he was now free of obligation to them and now could go to the Gentiles as it was designed by God, as he intended to to see Paul do. Paul himself, I think, was painfully aware of this truth and obeyed it with a kind of, of, of recognition mixed with, with pain and, and, and a wish that it could be different. Notice he's traveling with John Mark. This is the same John Mark from chapter 12. John Mark's mother had that church that Peter fled to after he left the jail. That'll come back here later in the text. Now, as they cross the island, Luke records this interesting encounter here when they reach the little town of Paphos. It's the center of Aphrodite worship on the island. And there is the proconsul, the the Roman authority who ruled the island. And he has a man with him who is a false prophet, a Jewish uh, man, a Jewish false prophet, a magician, a sorcerer. His name here is Bar-Jesus, which simply means son of Yeshua. Bar means son. So he's son of Yeshua. Yeshua was a common Jewish name, so his dad was Yeshua. He was the son of Yeshua. It's probably ironic here as well, right? Because he is a false prophet and magician, the son of Yeshua, rather than the true prophet. He is employed, as I said, by this proconsul. The man, Sergius Paulus, his name is Paul, just like the Paul that's come to visit him. And he was, as we're told, a smart man. A smart here refers to his basic intellect, his human abilities to reason and understand things. He must have heard of Saul and Barnabas in the neighborhood and their preaching caught his attention somehow. And he says, I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear the word of God. Bring them to me. Uh, Elimus is the name, the first name of this guy. He's Elimus Bar-Jesus. That's his full name. He immediately begins to work in thwarting what's going to happen in this meeting. He doesn't obviously want to hear or see the proconsul receive what's being preached. Now, how he actually tried to turn the proconsul away, you can only imagine, right? between mocking the message, discounting the truth of it, uh, probably some ad hominem attacks against Saul and Barnabas as well for who they were or what they looked like. In any case, he was doing anything he could. We already know the man's a false prophet. We know he's a sorcerer, which means he doesn't know the Lord. That much should be clear. And therefore, we know he then is operating under the enemy's influence because anyone who's not a child of God by faith is automatically a son of disobedience, a child of the devil. That's the biblical view of an unbeliever. Remember, that doesn't require that an unbeliever have any sense of that truth. The sorcerer in this case may or may not have understood who his God was. As Dylan says, you're going to serve somebody. 
He was serving the the devil, whether he understood it or not. But for the rest of humanity who do not know the Lord, whether they realize it or not, they are, as Paul calls them in Ephesians 2, sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says, talking to everyone, even those now who are in the church, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul says, you remember who you used to be? Just like the rest of the world, you used to be a child of the devil. That sounds like something you'd hear in Hollywood, right? It sounds like a a phrase you'd make fun of. But the truth of it is literal. We are literally in the nature, in the likeness, and under the control of the enemy at birth, natural birth. And that only changes in a supernatural way when we are born again. So you're either one or you're either the other. And so by definition, this man must be an instrument of the enemy. That explains his behavior, doesn't it? From the point of view that he now, without consciously recognizing it perhaps, he is spiritually opposed to the message that's being preached. And the enemy is using him like a pawn on a chessboard to fight the battle the enemy is engaged in. He is the prince of the air, the, the power of this world, and these unbelievers walk according to that course, Paul says. And so that's the impetus, that's the basis for what's happening here. Now we see, and this is probably one of those key moments in the New Testament, you could perhaps star these areas, these verses because they could become something you use at a teaching moment in the future. This is the moment that Paul's ministry begins as an apostle. And you'll notice that Luke himself directs us to that reality by just the way he alters the name of the apostle. Verse 9, he says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, if you want to add dramatic effect to this moment, here's how you imagine it. Saul and Barnabas are talking to the proconsul in respectful tones, speaking to him, looking at his gaze, noticing he's intently interested and trying to take his question. And all the while, there's this lunatic barking and yelling at them and saying things to stop the conversation and to get in the way. And it's an interruption and it's an inconvenience, never mind the fact that it's also blasphemy probably and any number of things. Finally, Saul has had it. And he becomes Paul in the moment. And he turns to him as Paul and he says in the words that you just read, and this is where I start to hear him saying it, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease? And he goes on. That's my impression of this. Not necessarily with that much uh, uh, angst, but certainly with, in, with a forcefulness that changed the moment. And he stops the guy in his tracks with those words. And then he says in verse 11, Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed what he saw, what, when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So Luke writes that Saul, who is also called Paul here, that's that transition now into his full ministry of the apostle. Think about it another way. If Luke was simply trying to clarify that Saul also had the name Paul, why would he choose to use this moment to give us that fact? He's been talking about Saul for several chapters off and on. He could have at any point in the past said, oh, by the way, he also had another name. It was Paul. This is the first time he brings it up. It's clearly timed 
to accentuate this change, this moment in which he becomes somebody else. And why, why can I say, how do we look at the text right now and, and know for certain this is the moment in which Paul's apostleship begins? Because he performs a miracle. He does what is classically and uniquely associated with apostleship in the New Testament. He performs supernatural miracles. Now notice this is, this is on demand, which is what makes it so unique. There is the possibility of God doing a supernatural work through anybody at any time. But there is a gifting called apostleship that allows the individual to command and produce supernatural events at their will. It's understood to be at the guidance and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of a gift, period. Every gift is that way. If you have a gift to do something, spiritually speaking, a spiritual gift, you never do it except by the Spirit being at work in the moment. I can't, I can't magically ima- know what Scripture says unless God chooses to give me that answer so that I can prepare it and provide it to you. But I just operate in a consistent, regular fashion, presuming that work is taking place, trusting in it, relying on it. That's the nature of gifts. People with a gift of prayer, they do the same thing. They don't, they don't have a light switch in their brain where they suddenly say, okay, now I'm going to pray in the Spirit. I mean, they're just always in prayer. It's a constant part of who they are. Similarly, the apostleship gift meant a continual access to these supernatural abilities, which they called at will when they needed to in the work of their ministry, and God was present in it. That identified them as somebody different. And that's part of what you see taking place now. Paul here and immediately in the moment says, I've got to do something to deal with this guy. And he does it. And he uses his power to do that. For everyone who comes to faith, hearing the calling of the Spirit and answering that call and then later stepping into ministry, that person will have a, a moment like Paul here. Not Paul's moment, not the same kind of event. But I think anyone who is in that process of coming to faith, walking with the Lord, and then answering a call in the ministry will have this kind of a moment sooner or later in the ministry. A point where they discover that true call God has on their life and they rise to the moment and they step into that role. And if they do it, they'll never look back. You don't step down from that role. That's why we can say, for example, that once an elder, always an elder. Once a deacon, always a deacon. It's a rising to an appointed role, which is forevermore. We're not talking about a filling of the Spirit. We're talking about an answering to the call of ministry that the Spirit will levy on us. All of us who come into a role in ministry, when we get there, we'll know we're there because there is a, there's a switch of life that takes place in the moment that then carries forward from there. It can be the time someone goes overseas and becomes a missionary. It can be the time someone enters into pastoral ministry. But it can also be in the way we, t- we come to, to feel our call to children in, the, in a children's ministry. It can be something that once you know that's where, where God wants you, that switch takes place in your mind and you're almost always there from that point forward. And the place can change and the title can change, but there's a direction in life, ministerially, a direction that is established and then you follow it. Before that point, you may serve in ministry one way or another and even have some degree of success in that. But once you step into the ministry that God has uniquely prepared you for, you become a new person in that ministry. That's been my experience. I can remember the moment in my life when that, when that happened for me and there was a distinct before and after. Before, I had some experiences in helping men's ministry or doing other things. Once I stepped into a pulpit, that changed everything. I, I never feel comfortable sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. I always feel like I'm in the wrong place. And that's a feeling you, you just, you, once you have that feeling, you now know where you're supposed to be. That's, I think, what you see Paul doing. He steps into his call. And now as apostle, of course, he starts to take a very important role in the future of the church because we're in the the moment of the church's expansion when the Gentiles are the focus, and now you have the apostle appointed to the Gentiles having stepped into the role. 
And from this point forward, we'll see this change in big ways and in small ways throughout the text. But, for example, Paul now will always take the leadership role over Barnabas, even in the way Paul lists their names. From now on, it's no longer Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas in the way he lists their names from the rest of the book. That's generally going to be a pattern you're going to see reflective of how Luke himself is telling the story. Here's where Paul stepped forward. So he emerges from the shadows of of Saul, the Pharisee, and becomes Paul, the apostle. Confronts Elimus directly, calls him out as a deceitful fraud. And I love this. It's a play on his name, if you didn't notice. Paul says, you're the son of the devil. You're not son of Yeshua, bar Jesus. You're son of the devil. Though Jesus, of course, here doesn't refer to the Messiah. Nonetheless, he played a game on the name. He says, you're an enemy of righteousness. Uh, By the way, those are charges you can level at every unbeliever. Though I'm not saying that's a successful tactic if you're trying to convert them. It's true nonetheless. And then he pronounces judgment. Now, this is a temporary judgment. The man will become blind. He'll be led around by the hand. But Paul says for a time. It's a temporary blindness. It will go away at some point. Isn't it interesting that Saul was persecuting the truth of the gospel and was an enemy of righteousness and a son of the devil when God struck him with temporary blindness and he had to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus? And it makes you wonder if Paul's been waiting all this time for a chance to do it to somebody else. Here's his chance. He pronounces a similar judgment. And the effect of this encounter is Paul's first recorded conversions. He may have done this prior. He may have had successful conversions prior to this moment. We don't know. But the first one recorded in Scripture. So note the circumstances here. I love this about the way the Scriptures reflect faith. Look at the circumstances of this man's conversion, the the proconsul. He invited Paul and Barnabas. They didn't invite themselves. He was advised against believing by one of his own. His belief arrives because his advisor is struck with blindness because Paul does something nasty to one of his own people. That's the convincing moment in the gospel presentation. This is hardly a textbook evangelistic outreach. It doesn't have all the factors we normally look for when you think you're going to be successful, does it? The spread of the gospel is entirely under God's hand. So much so that the whole moment began with him and ended with him. And he used it to great effect, of course, in Paul's ministry. He elevates him to ministry in this moment. So his first journey outward from the time that he starts in in ministry here began with him following Barnabas into Antioch, the first time Paul really was called into any form of ministry. But it ends now with him leading, performing miracles, preaching boldly, and Barnabas falling to the rear. And then Paul never looks back from this moment in the text. Luke writes this next section now to show that transformation more clearly. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian, Antioch, and on Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials said to, sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Boy, there's an invitation, isn't it? Notice immediately Luke says Paul and his companions. So Barnabas and the rest now have simply become others, the companions of Paul. And Paul is the star of the show at this point by God's design. They travel uh, by map. They travel about 180 miles over the water from Cyprus to uh, up a river, the Cestius River, which went into modern day Turkey. And then at a port in Perga, they get off the ship. And in that port, John Mark gets off with them, but he goes on to Jerusalem. He doesn't continue where they go from there. We don't know why John Mark left, but John Mark's departure is considered a desertion by Paul because when Paul writes 
uh, speaks of this later in Acts, just a couple chapters away from here, Acts 15. In verse 37, it says, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also on another trip. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So something about the circumstances of their departure made Paul not appreciate why uh, John wanted to leave. Anyway, they reached finally Pisidia, the center of east-west traffic in that day in that part of the world, located near, uh, it's in modern-day Turkey, near the ancient city of Lystra. And, as was typical, again, they go into the synagogue. Now, since they were visitors in the synagogue, this is the custom. A, a visitor into a synagogue is usually given the honor, offered the honor, to read from the scroll, whatever it was intended for the day, whatever the, the reading was. In some cases, and this was optional, you wouldn't always see this happen, but in some cases, the synagogue official might deem these visitors suitable as potentially preachers for the day. They, if they looked learned, if they seemed to be men who could handle the responsibility, they would be invited to give an exhortation out of the text to preach. How would you like that? That would be reason to dress down on Sundays if you were worried about getting called into the preaching duties. There's a long Stephen-like, and I don't refer to me, I'm referring to the martyr. There's a long Stephen-like presentation here that uh, we can just move through rather quickly. Let's look at verses 16 through 25 as the first section. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an up, uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the, <laughs> the wilderness. I'm sorry, I laugh every time I, look, I read that. He put up with them. Yes, he did. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this is Paul's first recorded preaching. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's similar in many respects to Stephen's, Stephen's famous uh, preaching as well. It has a different tone, though. You notice it's, it's going to result as well in a different response. But, but Stephen's tone was, was one in which he was bringing the, the crowd to a conclusion that they made a mistake with respect to Jesus. And, of course, it angered them. And, and that's not to say that Stephen did it the wrong way. We're just saying that he was directed by the Spirit into that method or into that style. Paul's preaching here is designed... Uh, I think differently. It's designed to rationally reason someone to an understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. This would be the more classic modern approach, if you will, the way we would traditionally do it today. You know, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you why he died. Let me tell you about why we have to believe in him. Let me tell you what happens if you don't. It's rational, Western in some sense. This is such a wonderful distinction around Paul versus Stephen. Stephen is Jewish, preaching to Jews, the Eastern way of thought. This is Paul, a Jew, yes, but now directed toward a Gentile audience and capable of pivoting in that way so that now his presentation takes a very Western style. Though these are Jews, they're Jews in the diaspora. They're Greek Hellenistic Jews. And the Greek Western style of thought, which is the way we are all trained to think, 
is in view in the way the preaching is taking place here. Look at what he says. Let's summarize it. He addresses the crowd first as both Jew, those men of Israel, but he also incorporates the proselytes here, the proselytes, the stalactites and, and all the things that hang from the ceiling. <laughs> the Gentiles who have congregated in a synagogue and therefore are considered, quote, God-fearers, that's the official term in, in the in nation of Israel, for a Gentile who attaches themselves to the, to the nation in faith. So there's Gentiles in this room as well. And Paul begins basically a historical recounting of Israel, beginning with Exodus. And he, he picks some very specific and very interesting highlights. And by looking at those highlights, you see a pattern start to emerge from the text. First, he uses Moses. Now, Moses was Israel's deliverer. That's, that's, his, that's, his, uh, that's the, the summation of who he was in the minds of Israel. He was the man who led them out of slavery. But then Paul reminds them that that deliverance resulted in 40 years of disobedience in the desert. And every good Jew who knew that story would clearly remember the reason why that unfortunate episode in their history took place. Because of disobedience. Because of disobedience. So, though Moses was a deliverer, he couldn't deliver the nation from their own disobedience. Then, he cites the next phase of the nation's history. They enter into the land under Joshua. They defeat the nations of Canaan. They settle. That took 450 years. That's counting, by the way, from Isaac uh, to the conquest of the land. Then, that led to a time of judges, which ended with Samuel having turned from judge to prophet. And as prophet, he's the man who couldn't rule over an unruly people. He couldn't even rule over his sons. And so he has, I guess, the unenviable task within the nation of Israel of having to give them what they want, though it's the wrong thing. So he has to appoint a king. He appoints the first king, Saul, the king the people wanted, of course, but it was not the man from the right tribe. He didn't come out of the right tribe. He was not the right king, and he didn't perform the job the right way. He was not the man God wanted. He was the man people wanted. And so they got what they asked for. And you notice how long they endured that mistake? Forty years. The number that is always given in Scripture for a trial or a test. Saul was a king who failed to rule properly, failed to follow the Lord, and he ruled for 40 years until he gave way to the proper king, the one God intended, David, out of the proper tribe, tribe of Judah. And the Messiah now is mentioned as the one who would be the son of this David, coming in the likeness of David or in the family of David. But then Paul starts to say, but before you assume that maybe David and some heir of David was the actual Messiah, remember, David's reign didn't last forever. So the promise of a deliverer, the promise of a prophet, of a king, has to be fulfilled through somebody else because all these others who were who were predecessors to the real thing, shadows of the real thing, they don't fulfill all that's needed for this real thing. The scripture, in fact, Paul says, uh, tells us the promised one will rule and will never experience decay, but yet David did. So David doesn't fulfill that point. In fact, he'll say that here again in a minute. What Paul's doing here is he's leading them through a conclusion that there was to be a prophet, there was to be a king, there was to be a priest over the nation, but who they've had did not fulfill all that God expected out of that coming Messiah. They haven't had the fullness of it yet. And that was a common problem in the nation. They began to see some of these people in their history as the fulfillment of this promised one, not merely as the predecessor or forerunner to the, to the promised one. They held Moses in high regard. They thought David was the epitome of kingship. They didn't realize, of course, that the Messiah would be greater than all of them. So Paul is bringing them that, to that conclusion. And now he drives the point home. Verse 26. Brethren, he says, Sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers 
recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he was spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your day, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So Paul says the message of the salvation has been sent to the Jews, and yet those who deny it back in the day when they crucified Christ, they were actually fulfilling the very Scriptures they failed to believe. And then he retells the death process, the resurrection process, the appearance to the apostles, and so on. You really, you could outline this speech and you have the essentials of the gospel. What is it I really have to explain to someone so that they would hear the full gospel? You, know, you don't necessarily have to explain the full gospel for someone to believe. Sometimes you just give a word or two and they believe, if God's prepared their heart. But if your intentions are to present the full counsel of God with respect to the gospel, here it is. Who he was, that he lived that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that that raising was seen and witnessed by the apostles and preached in the gospel, and that now in in deliverance from sin, he is the one promised to us. He is the one who will deliver us from sin. That connection of dot to dot is the basics of the gospel message. Notice Paul does not expect this point to necessarily convince the crowd because he ends here with with the quote here out of Habakkuk that uh, basically he said you wouldn't listen. He said you won't believe. Who's going to believe it? Looking at the center part, though, when he talks about David, this is just to reinforce what I said a moment ago. He makes the argument here that there was in the Psalms David declaring that he will be a son of God. And some had taken to believe that David was talking about himself, calling himself the son of God. Or others had taken to believe that David was talking about one of his descendants, one of his children, who would be a son of God. But when Paul now looks at that psalm, he skillfully shows that the son that is the son of David, the one who is the son of God. This son is also said in another psalm, also written by David, to not undergo decay. So the same son that is David's son is the one who will not undergo decay. But that, can't, that excludes David and every one of his kids. Paul then says, it's the one who was raised from the dead who didn't undergo decay. That's how he gets out of it. That's how he avoids it. And that one, of course, refers to the resurrection of Jesus in verse 37. So the answer is Jesus. Belief in them, belief in Jesus will set them free from all that the law couldn't. And then he ends with Habakkuk 1.5. I love that. It's not the evangelistic method, by the way. If I could have heard somebody sitting in the back of the room grading Paul, they would have come up and said, great job. Really like the presentation and the energy. We need to work on the ending. 
You need to wrap it up a little differently than that. That's not going to bring him through at the end. He comes in with the behold you scoffers. Not the way to do it. But there's Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 saying, I praise God, I did not come to you with cleverness of speech. Right? This is what he was referring to, not this speech per se, but in the characteristic style here. He wasn't trying to butter him up. He really didn't care if they liked what he said. He wasn't particularly worried if his message came across in the best and most eloquent way because the success of it didn't depend on any of those factors. It was entirely up to God. And all he had to do was, was be faithful to presenting it without too much worry about how. And if in the moment, by the Spirit's guidance, he chose a scripture that came to mind that reinforced their hard heart, that's not his fault. That's not his problem. That's all in God's control. But I'm sure in many other cases, as he preached, it was a mass conversion moment. That was the nature of his ministry. He's founded church after church. So he's waiting here for the work of the Spirit. And now as we wrap it up here at the very end of the night, verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath... Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Isn't it interesting here that the presentation of the gospel to the Jews on the first week resulted not in a conversion, but nor a repudiation in that first moment, but an, an invitation for an encore, which, of course, when it took place the next week, resulted in, as this text says, virtually the entire city showing up to hear his message. What if his what if the reason got allowed for a some glimmer, glimmer of hope, some some minimal acceptance by the, on the part of the Jews in that first presentation. What if God's reasoning for allowing even that, just that little bit of a cracked door in the people of, of, of the synagogue was so that they would go out and spread the message for Paul that there's an interesting guy, you need to come listen to him. So that on the following week, when it was time for God to say no to those Jews in the end, and yes to the Gentiles, he had a ready audience for it. I see this as a good example of how God's ways are not our ways. Though we understand where it ended up, we may not have seen it coming. Though we might have assumed after that first week, I think God's going to let us turn every heart in that synagogue. But as it turns out at the end, no, God's intent was not that the hearts of those Jews would be saved necessarily, but that they would be an instrument he would use to bring Gentiles into the church in that day. There was the congregation, but then there was the leadership of the Jews within the congregation. The first time Paul and Barnabas come, they're invited by the leaders to exhort. And so their exhortation probably caught the leadership off guard, but they can hardly get mad at them because, after all, they were invited. They think that's the end of it. But as you notice, they leave the synagogue and they have all this crowd now, or at least a segment of the crowd, following after them, wishing them well and asking them to come back. And so they return the next week. And now in the return, they bring the city with them. And now as that city gathers, you see the leadership in this small synagogue saying, whoa, 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 whoa. It's the Pharisees all over again. It's back to the day of Jesus as he walked the earth. When Jesus became such a big threat to the political and religious power of the leadership that they no longer could tolerate that threat, now the message was not the issue, it was Jesus himself. And in much the same way here, once the 
Jewish leadership saw the potential threat of a Paul and Barnabas taking their sheep with them, becoming sheep stealers, as we would say today. They realized the risk and they said, these guys can't be allowed to get a hearing here. And they began to poison the crowd and argue against what was being said and indict the people, uh, indict Paul and Barnabas in front of the crowd. And in typical form, the Jews followed after their leadership, which is exactly how the Jews were hardened and how they came to reject Christ in the first place. And in the place of the Jews, the Gentiles who were in that audience and from the city were able to receive the gospel. Just to sum it up, Luke here has established once and for all that Paul's presence is for the Gentiles and his preference was not a bias against the Jews or against his own people. It was the inevitable result of God's work. Heavenly Father, send us home safely and uh, keep us warm as we go. Send us also, Father, send us away with a, a renewed appreciation for the way your body should work in, in the changeover of leadership from time to time and in a call to ministry in our own walk and in the way we bring the gospel with boldness, not worrying about the message, only worrying, Father, uh, about whether we're obedient. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you continue to just hold this group together. Let us continue to study. Let us continue to move through this text. And I also look forward, Father, to uh, the addition of others as you may bring them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.